This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by author Tony Black. Oh, well, you know, author. Thanks, Duncan. It's uh, it's quite nice to hear that on my uh, on my name. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's great to be back on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on, Tony. Uh, you, you, you were an author already, actually, because you, you had another book that came out, what, like a year or two ago now. But we are here today to talk about your book, which will be of particular interest to our listeners, I think, um, which is a book about Star Trek. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of, I remember you first started talking about this project way back at Destination Star Trek 2018, was it? The big DS9 uh, yeah, you were first sort of mulling over this idea. So how did it get from, from there to, uh, where we are today with, you know, a, a book out there in the world? That yeah. Buy? I, I, well, I, I feel like I remember I was, I was sitting with you and Clara Cook, uh, in between some panels somewhere. And, uh, yeah, I happened to mention that this is something I've been thinking about. So I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to get my first book, which is called Myth Building in Modern Media, published by a publisher in America called McFarland, who have been terrific. And they, uh, they were interested when I came up with, in my head, the idea for primitive culture, the book. And it was never called that as such, but off the back of many of our conversations, I started to think, I think there's a story to be told here in many ways about the cultural history of Star Trek, because that's essentially what we're doing. It's just, not in order as such, because we're doing different topics and we're not going in a, any kind of chronological sense, I guess, throughout like Star Trek history. But if you put all of our podcasts that we've done and you've done with lots of other people together, you build up this amazing picture over the last hundred and so episodes of a cultural history of Star Trek from the 60s onwards. So I started to think, well, actually, I think there's an idea here for this. So it was as simple as... After I'd finished writing Myth Building, which there was a bit of uh, Star Trek in that book, which is very much about the concept of the myth arc and mythology and, and in terms of modern fiction and how that is developed in stories today, both in Star Trek and lots of other properties as well. So there were some chapters on things like Cisco's Christian sort of arc and, and that kind of stuff. But I, I thought there was a real scope to actually take a lot of the 
the core ideas that we were talking about in the podcast that sort of underpin Star Trek across all of the decades since the 1960s and try and weave a story. So I, I, I pitched what was actually a bigger book to McFarland, which was actually covering the, not just the 20, not just the 20th century from the 60s, but the span of human history <laughs> sort of going all the way back to, um, yeah, to like ancient gods and, and how they, you know, figures in, in ancient, ancient, Greece and all this kind of thing and how they played into Star Trek and then up into like the 19th and 19th century with all the nautical stuff which we've done episodes on before um, but they said why don't we pin it down why don't we pin it down into like a 20th century kind of focus and, and they and they were right and they made that they that was a good suggestion and then it sort of tightened up and it became the story I guess of the history of Star Trek and the history of us as a society from 65 with the cage all the way through to what is roughly, I would say, you can carbon date the book to about very early 2020, just after Picard's first season. I think I, I wasn't quite in time for Discovery season three or the the animated shows. So it's sort of Picard season one is kind of the cutoff point, I guess. So if there is a version two, you never know. <laughs> I'll just update you with a bit more. You've been very wise, Tony, doing it chronologically, I think, because you see, I found the, the Star Trek book that I wrote getting on for what, gosh, like 20 years ago now. Um, I updated recently for the 50th anniversary, but because that book was not chronological at all, it sort of jumped around all over the place. It was quite a major job, like going in and slotting it. Every time there was a theme that was touched on by an episode of Enterprise or something that didn't exist when that book was originally written, I had to go back and sort of work out where to drop those in. You've made it much easier for yourself. You can just add a chapter five or whatever, and kind yeah. of, you know, keep going over the decades, you, yeah. you know, third edition, fourth edition, etc. But aside from that, I actually think it's really, I haven't read an account that does things in that sort of chronological order. And it makes so much sense to do it. I, I don't know why I haven't seen that. I mean, there is a book called Star Trek and History, but I think that is like a uh, set of essays, basically, that, you know, on different topics. So again, it's quite sort of episodic, I suppose. Whereas what I think is great about your book is that you give a real sense of the kind of the cultural environment at different times and how that feeds into the shows. And in some ways on this podcast, I feel like we, we, we look at a specific topic each week and we go into that in some detail. Um, and often we're looking at Star Trek engaging with history itself. It's sort of with history as inspiration, but really, I suppose what you're looking at, well, not, not entirely because you do look about World War II and stuff like that, but is that more of an emphasis on the kind of cultural milieu uh, surrounding the production of a, of a given show, whether that's, you know, the counterculture in the 1960s, Reaganism, uh, you know, in the 1980s, the war on terror, whatever that is, and the ways in which our, our own primitive culture that we are living through feed into the, the writing of the shows over the course of, you know, 50 odd years. Yeah. Well, the, the whole sort of focus and idea of the book was essentially to try and answer a question of are we going in the right direction in many ways? You know, that's sort of the central thesis of the book as it, as it came out, which is a question sort of posed at the very beginning. And it, you know, it took me back to when we were, uh, when we first devised this podcast and we were talking about names and we came up with the name primitive culture, which obviously then is featured in the credits for this show and that line, you know, that Deanna Troy says. And. Yeah, it, it does. The book actually sort of ends with that whole idea about future history, about the first contact era, post the post atomic horror, 
at the point when Deanna travels back in time and says, you know, they're a primitive culture. And we're not far away now from that period. You know, we've, we've, it's been talked about a lot in Star Trek lately that we're, I think we're closer to first contact day now than we are the cage or <laughs> the first series of TOS. So it's quite a sobering That slightly thought. blew my mind when I read that sentence. Actually, it's a bit like there's a meme that's been going around on the internet this week saying, did you know it's the same distance of time? Now, any mathematicians are going to be angry if I get this wrong. But basically, <laughs> the, the time from 1980 to now is the same as the time between 1980 and 1939, uh, which to me as a child of the 80s is slightly uh, hard to get my head around. You know, yeah. so it's it, it's one of those things where, yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of hoping to, you know, still be around when First Contact Day comes about. I mean, you know, failing the arrival of extraterrestrials at the very least, there surely has <laughs> got to be like this Star Trek convention to end all Star Trek conventions, hasn't there? Well, you, you'd hope, wouldn't you? You'd like, we'd like to think that by April 5th, 2063, we will still be able to have conventions. <laughs> you know, we won't all have been wiped out by pandemics or, you know, the ravages of solar goodness, goodness knows what from climate change. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the whole idea was, are we going, are we going in the right direction or are we heading for the challenges that Star Trek was built on the idea that, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, the idea that Star Trek went through these incredible periods of trauma and horror and death in order to get to the idea of the Federation. And, you know, part of, part of the, the idea is I think a lot of people right now have started to think, well, actually, are we actually in the mirror universe? <laughs> you know, is, is that actually where we are? Are we heading down that road more than we are the Federation future? And I think it's interesting. What interested me about this book and, and where I wanted to sort of tie it together was to sort of tell that story over these particular, over these decades with these particular focuses on, on, like you mentioned, some of these key areas that have been part of that Star Trek story. So I go into some depth about Vietnam and how Vietnam is reflected in the show. Uh, and, and the great thing is there's so many fantastic pieces of writing out there. And I think I quote your book at one point as well, actually, the one you mentioned, The Human Frontier. And I include that in this. And it's that already have gone into a lot of depth with these areas. So it's very much a case of stitching it together and trying to weave a story of how Star Trek began from this place of hope, began from this place of 60s prosperity, and managed to sort of so I mean, in a way it's a, it's almost a good job that it didn't exist in the seventies that much you know that it was kind of a quiet decade on screen anyway although the convention circuit was was there and and there, there was a hell of an interest in Star Trek and reruns and this kind of thing but there wasn't much newly produced Star Trek in the nineteen seventies because it was it was quite a a dark quite a dark decade for the American psyche in many ways and and the, the, I talk about Phase Two at one point and. I go through some of the plots of phase two and how some of these ideas might have been reflected in some of the stories that we never got that we know a bit about. You know, there was particular, uh, one particular story was Kirk going back to Pearl Harbor and a similar story in many ways to City on the Edge of Forever. I think it was called Tomorrow and the Stars, maybe. And, uh, I'm sure lots of people listening to this know of this story, but I think what, it, it's a good example of a story that I think had it been made in the 90, late 1970s, it might it would have been quite maudlin in many ways. It would have been a reflection on this American wound that was 
has never one of the many wounds that has never really been dealt with, and particularly in that era after Vietnam, when America is very much sort of licking its wounds, and you know there's an argument to say it's still licking its wounds to this day in many ways. And as we record, we're uh, we're seeing the fallout from the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is it's not the same as Vietnam, but there are certainly shades of that same kind of long term. I think can, you know trauma in in different way in a similar yet different way. So I think. I think it's just interesting to chart how Star Trek sort of weaves itself in and out of these decades over over time. And I suppose in this book, there is quite a focus on political history as well as so there is social history in there. But I think the politics, the sort of tentpole poli- political points, as you said, Reaganism, 9-11 uh, and, and our current flirtation with um, populism in a big way. Uh, and the Trump era, which gets a which gets touched on towards the end, I think they are sort of key milestones, really, in this story. And it's it's the whole argument, isn't it, Duncan? Of when people turn round and they moan, "Oh, Star Trek's getting too political," or "Such and such is getting too political." Well, well everything's political. <laughs> Every it doesn't matter. I had the argument about Alien recently, and I think I wrote a piece about it, which was. Um, you know, a, a, Alien, is, you, there's no politics in Alien. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Uh, so I think it's important to sort of recognise that. So that, that's a core part of the book, I think. I mean, I thought one of the fascinating things about the book, to be honest, was the stuff about Phase 2 and the 1970s, because I suppose we tend to think of the 70s as a period, uh, a sort of fallow period for Star Trek. I mean, obviously there was the animated series, but I feel like until recently we sort of tried to pretend that didn't exist somehow. <laughs> yeah. Phase two, I read that book about phase two years ago, you know, back in the nineties or whenever it was published. Uh, but since then, I, ho- I don't think I've given phase two a second thought. And actually, I think it's really interesting. I have a friend who I think is working on a book about Star Treks that didn't get made, you, you know, the kind of all the, the different sort of aborted, uh, projects. And in a way, they are just as illustrative of the time that they're created in as, as the ones that did make it to screen. Because, you know, you have the same process of, especially when you're coming up with a new series, you know, how do you redefine Star Trek? How do you kind of re, uh, envisage what it is and what it means, um, in a different era? And of course, we have seen that with every, every version. I mean, the interesting thing is that most versions, I suppose, of Star Trek that we've had, have to undergo some kind of course correction. I mean, if you think of something like Next Gen, you know, next gen after two years had to to really take quite a sharp turn in some ways to become the show that you know we know and love and i don't know whether the same is true of ds9 and voyager in some ways you could say arguably uh there is a similar shift in both of those shows as they you know take on new crew members that sort of shake up the dynamic a lot and obviously enterprise was basically three totally different shows during the course of its run you know one for seasons one and two something totally different for season three and then a, a third version of itself for season four and in that case i'd say it's it's the middle one that is so so very obviously off the time that it's such a kind of post 9-11 show you know they spent a long time ignoring it then they like went full on for that uh and situated the show very much in the kind of rip from the headlines uh you know present day allegory mold um and then turned completely away from that in a way and went back into this kind of nostalgia fest for season four um and obviously people have varying opinions about which of those is is the most successful but i suppose it's an interesting tension for star trek in some ways running all the way through you know how 
How does it interact with the present when it's being produced? How does it interact with history? Why is it, for example, that the 90s Trek shows are so fixated on the Second World War? You know, both Deep Space Nine, kind of obviously, but also Voyager. You know, so many Voyager episodes that are informed by the Holocaust or the war in various ways. Is that just about, you know, it, it, the 90s being 50 years since since the war in a kind of, you know, sort of anniversary sensibility? Or, or is there something else going on there? You know, I, I think these are really interesting questions. I like the way that you're able to sort of paint the bigger picture throughout the book uh, and, and also to sort of draw connections that maybe might not be obviously apparent. I mean, you, you drew a connection between the motion picture and the religious rite in America. That's not something I'd ever really thought of before. Obviously, that's a film with kind of religious themes, but I suppose um, it's very easy to see that film as basically a riff on 2001. Uh, and I think thinking about what's actually going on you know, at the time it's being made. I mean, 2001 is, is, you know, probably what, like 10 or more years been, been out by that point. Interesting to, to tackle that film in terms of the kind of cultural milieu at the time that it's being produced. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I think it, it, I'm, I love the motion picture and I think it, the, the older I get and I, 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 I think a lot of people are feeling very similar about that film in particular and how, how crucial that film was in many ways to, exist at when it did at the end of that decade which you've you know you've described well there and i think the, the one of the one of the things that's interesting about and i touch on in the book that weaves into the, the the politics as well is is the fixation on christianity and religion throughout star trek which to anyone would seem a very a show that isn't at all religious i mean particularly the 90s stuff I suppose all of it, really. It doesn't come across as a religious show, but it kind of is in a way. You know, in, in many, many instances, there are a lot, there's lots of reactionary content to the idea of God or gods or pantheons. And it's all over the 1960s show. It's in the 90s series, but it's from, I would say, much more of a neutral, secular point of view often. You know, in the, in the, particularly in the next generation, gods are, you know, always considered from a very rational scientific point of view, then they're always some sort of entity. You know, they never, you know, and and that's the thing. In, in the motion picture, there is that quasi-religious aspect to it of it being a ultimately a the character of Decker sacrificing himself to save the world, to save the universe. And I think it's very metaphorical in terms of what Roddenberry was particularly interested in. And then it sort of, once you get into the more technical, and this is not in any way a criticism, but more of the technical scientific years of Michael Piller and the kind of stories he told in Star Trek. And then, and then in some ways passing that torch to Iris Stephen Bear, who brought it very much more down to earth. I think you, you see that move in different directions. I think Iris Stephen Bear with DS9 brings much more of a mythic element to it all. He, it's not so much. A, a Roddenberry was very much, uh, it, it, I think he was very torn because I think on the one hand he was very atheist, but on the other hand he was fascinated by faith and he wanted to try and figure it out and he wanted to try and understand it. And he, and he distrusted the idea of religion. Whereas I think Iris Stephen Bear and the DS9 writers, I think were, it was a different kind of approach, particularly with Cisco and the kind of, there was almost, there was a reverence without there being the fanaticism. There was the idea of, of religion being much more in terms of, of mythology than it was a, a, a more of a deliberate reference point. And I think, I think, I think there's a, di I think there's a difference. I think 
I'm very interested in this book of trying to chart how that changes over time as well and how as you get into the the, the reboot films as well, you know, the the alternate timeline, the J.J. Abrams stuff, and particularly the modern day kind of content, a lot of that's kind of – it's kind of gone away, I think, in many ways. I think now Star Trek is is a balance of the – very populist is the wrong word. I suppose much more aware of a bigger, broader fan base that it could achieve in the way it's developed and the way it's produced compared to where it was in the nineties. But also it's moved away. I think from being a show that explores these ideas too heavily. It's more, it's, it's more of a, I think from the most part now and an action adventure kind of story that is, Got, has got one foot in the the kind of allegory of the world today that is trying to reconcile with the darkness of that world. So I, th- I think I think this I think one of the th- interesting things in how it changes now all these things sort of overlap the cultural, the the political, the religious aspects and how it's it's sort of changed Star Trek from that point, you know. And and then it, but, but it, I think one of the things I found right in this book was that. There, there have almost been, it all, it all depends on who's running it. It all depends on who's in charge, you know, in terms of the way that Star Trek is presented. Like I just, just described Roddenberry's grappling with faith. Nicholas Meyer wasn't as interested in, the, in that kind of stuff when he sort of steers the eighties kind of movies in many ways. Along, you could say, with mm. Leonard Nimoy. In fact, he said that he couldn't cope with bringing Spock back uh, because, you know, basically because he didn't believe yeah. in Jesus. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of argument was like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this story. You know, I'll pass on that one. And you know, and then obviously he comes back later on. So it's a sort of, it's interesting. I think you know, where are the are the kind of blind spots? Again, I suppose Enterprise. I would say is probably the least. You know, we get a few like fundamentalist. Uh, you know, religious terrorists, but, uh, and, and we get some kind of slightly silly, uh, pilgrims, I think, in, in an episode of Enterprise. But I don't know. I feel like Enterprise in, in some ways is the most sort of wary of those kind of, um, religious themes since the next generation in some ways. But interestingly, you know, you say we don't get it now in Trek. I feel like in lower decks, we do get a little bit more of the weird, wacky kind of, original series sensibility i mean although lower decks is set in the kind of next generation era a lot of it feels like it's sort of leaning on the original series i mean we had an episode yeah. recently with that played off you know the giant hand in space and the idea <laughs> of people turning into gods and you you know all these sort of was that ransom's floating head yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so i don't know you know m- Maybe it varies. Um, but I was interested, you know, talking about Michael Pillar, it made me think, yes, I think Michael Pillar probably was quite um, a rationalist in a sense. But he was very interested by the time we got to insurrection in the New Age movement. And I think that's an interesting case in point because that film and, and that element of it obviously is picking up on something in the sort of zeitgeist at the time, in the same way as, you know, you might say The Way to Eden or whatever is picking up in the kind of 1960s version. Now, I remember watching Insurrection for the first time, none of that stuff resonated with me at all. I was very sceptical of the of all the sort of new age stuff around. I, I thought it was silly. You, you know, a bit like I suppose lots of people in the 60s felt about the hippies. Um, <laughs> you know, it didn't work for me and I didn't like that that's where Star Trek was going. These days, as much as there's many things that I can find to not like about Insurrection, which I think is a 
very uh, mixed bag of a film. That stuff actually doesn't bother me. I quite like it. I think it's quite sweet. I think it's quite engaging. I sort of, I don't know if it's because like mindfulness has become much more sort of ma- mainstream and these sort of ideas about, do you know what I mean? Like our, mm. our concept of, uh, th- these sort of, I suppose they are sort of new age ideas, but they've been repackaged in a different way. That's less about that sort of slightly annoying identity uh, and more about, I don't know, um, well-being or whatever. I wonder whether that makes something like that more palatable, you know, whatever it is, uh, 20 or 30 years down the line. But it's interesting, you know, of course, the more your show draws on contemporary issues, contemporary, uh, you know, ideas that are floating around, there's a strength in that at the time. There's also a danger, you know, it can make a show seem very dated. And I think generally speaking, Star Trek has managed to endure by having a sort of balance, hasn't it? I mean, it's as much as we can say, oh, this is very much of the 1960s or this is very much of the 1980s. They're not so to the extent that they're unwatchable, if you know what I mean, with with a few, you know, awkward exceptions. I mean, there's that Voyager episode, which is inspired by the whole sort of satanic panic and ends up in a sort of post-Me Too world being just wildly offensive. And, you know, in the 90s, when it was being produced, it was being, the allegory was read one way and therefore the focus was in one direction. Nowadays, it's impossible not to read the allegory from a different angle. Uh, and, and the episode is kind of destroyed by it completely. Um, not to say it was a great episode in the first place, but I think, you know, obviously they were envisaging it as being about one thing. Now we see it as about something else. Equally, you know, um, uh, the outcast was written as an episode about gay rights. We now see it as a, a rather clumsy episode about trans identities you know so there's this kind of thing that um sometimes because the culture sort of changes and, and you know i suppose even in, in terms of things like the costuming you know the miniskirts or whatever in the original series i mean there's these debates you know are the miniskirts empowering as nichelle nichols claims or are they you know sexist basically all these things i think these are some of the interesting things as well as and you're right you know it's not just the political history it's the kind of social history and it's the sort of history of our ideas about ourselves and about the universe and about the future and about all these kind of things that cannot help but play in one way or another, whether consciously, whether it's a deliberate allegory or whether it's just in informing, you know, our assumptions and what our kind of um, underlying beliefs are about what's going to endure into the future and also about what's going to change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think Star Trek has always had because we do, you know, I do cover the social, quite a bit aspects of the social history, you know, as you mentioned, many of those examples. I think Star Trek has always intended to be progressive in many of its ways. I think, I think it's always had its heart in the right place with, even when you look back now on, say, an episode like Rejoined, uh, where, you know, Jadzia explores a gay, rela- or sort of explores a gay relationship. It, but then doesn't at the same time. You can look back on that now and it's, it's at the time it was quite considered quite racy and, and if not challenging as such, then it was a bit, you know, people were like, ooh, in terms of that's doing something different. And now it, you look back on it and it's just, it's not doing anything at all of interest, but really. And, 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 you know, so there, there are lots of examples of where it kind of puts its foot in it in many ways, but it's, tr- and the outcast is another great one, but it's trying, I think, it's trying, I think, to reflect a future that is more progressive. It was interesting in doing the research about points where, however, 
the people involved in producing the show, maybe more higher up in terms of the studio, would often put the kibosh on things like gay relationships, on lesbian relationships, because they, I think they, they considered that Star Trek would be playing to and maybe a middle American, quite broad Christian audience in many ways, I think. And I, or they were conscious that they didn't want to offend a conservative sensibility at the same time on the networks. Whereas nowadays, there is the, the show is being actively developed in ways that seem like they are progressive and won't necessarily date as badly as some of these examples. You look at a character like Adira in Discovery Now, who is played by a non-binary actor who is being of, who I imagine has some input in terms of how that character is developed in many ways with script writers. There seems to be much more of a conscious aspect to try and represent different groups as opposed to just a token gesture or a token, you know, story that tries to cover it and makes a bit of a hash job of it. And, you know, and in terms of representation as well, I mean, Nichelle Nichols, I think, would have seen things differently to how it's viewed now because that's the way that's the way it works you know that that is the way it works everything looks different from a from a future prison discovery and how what it's doing with trans with transgender issues might look, might date who knows we're not ones to judge in many ways but i think it's it's interesting to see how i think star trek over the years has tried to represent these different things and i think that's an important part of the story of it an important part of how the message is always that it's trying to see the good in humanity. It's a very human show in all of these different examples. And I think one of the areas that I think maybe some fans, and I would say you and I maybe are in this camp, have become a little bit tired of it in some ways or a bit a bit frustrated at points with the way it's developed these days is sometimes it feel, it's felt like they've lost a little bit of that movement it feels like they've lost a little bit of that hopefulness and that they are buying into the idea that everything in star trek has to take a little bit of a beating in order to earn itself in many ways and i I think i think we might be coming out onto a different into a different area with that now i think i think maybe now we're going to start to see shows that really do reflect that hope again because I try and end the book on a point of, at, a, at that kind of point of hoping that we will be able to turn a corner and that we won't necessarily go down a, a road where we don't get to this Federation future, even though it can seem at times that right now, particularly right now in the last few years, that we aren't going in the right direction. And there is a little bit, I'm sure there's a bit of you, there's certainly a little bit of me that thinks, what the hell is this world going to be like? in the 23rd century, you know, <laughs> in the 22nd century. I can't even begin to imagine. Uh, but Star Trek is always from that position of hope. And that's something that you do see in, in all of these social examples, in all of these cultural examples that it's trying to reach from that, reach for that throughout these decades, through all the different political areas it represent, it reflects, whether it's the Cold War, whether it's, the, the 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 inter years, you know, the post Cold War, pre nine eleven years, which is DS nine and Voyager's kind of playing field, where everything's all about, in many ways. Well, on the one hand, you've got Voyager doing the sort of American exceptionalism, and on the other hand, you've got DS nine doing the very reflective, are we the bad guys kind of thing. You know, it's that it's that whole mixture that it's trying to explore, and then Enterprise in that shock of nine eleven, and then beyond. You know, that the the uh, one of the things I talk about with the nostalgia aspect of the reboots is that the reboots are a comforting 
a comforting salve in many ways for a future that's really uncertain. Star Trek wasn't quite brave enough at that point to sort of push forward. It was like, let's go back to the 60s. It's nice and comfortable there. We know where we are. We know what everything is. It's all colourful. It's all fun. And it was a bit scared, I think, to push forward. And it's now starting to get through that, I think. And had I written this a year later or six months later, Duncan, I think I would have ended with some kind of piece about how maybe Star Trek will be different in the Biden era, you know? in that era where hopefully a more progressive politics is going to bloom in the United States. And, you know, in comparison to the real sort of existential, you know, uh, Nadia of, of Donald Trump. So I think that if I was going to tag a little bit on now, I would, I would put a postscript there, I think for that, because hopefully that's what we're going to see going forward now. Well, that can wait for the second edition. <laughs> I think it's interesting, you know, when you're talking about, Discovery in particular. I mean, I think Discovery, obviously Discovery's come under a certain amount of flack for, you know, this idea of woke Trek and that, you know, all these kind of, um, quite conservative sort of old school, uh, supposed fans who don't like some of the stuff that Discovery does with LGBT, uh, issues in particular. I mean, Star Trek obviously has always, well, first of all, Star Trek has always been woke. We just didn't yeah. use that word yeah. before. I yeah. mean, if you look at the original series, uh, and the, you know, something like let that be your last battlefield, mm. that's nothing if not a, I mean, a clunky one, but, you know, very definite sort of, you know, uh, woke episode in a sense. I mean, I think maybe there is a sense that maybe, more than any other Star Trek show since the original series, uh, Discovery is kind of wearing its heart on its sleeve a bit. Um, but I think there's also an element that, you know, Rejoined maybe was controversial back in the 90s. I mean, not for me, probably not for you, but obviously for a lot of people, that was a, a difficult episode for them to, to cope with. I mean, now... You know, there have been lots of failures on that front. I mean, particularly uh, Voyager and Enterprise, I think, really kind of dropped the ball. I mean, we, you know, as much as we had great representation with, you know, Cisco as a black uh, commander and then Captain Janeway as a female captain and so on. I think the kind of lack of any gay characters throughout those 90 shows was quite noticeable and is a real sort of a sort of blot on Star Trek's record in a sense. On the other hand, you know, Discovery is many decades later. I mean, maybe there are fewer people now who would actually have an issue with a gay couple on a, on a TV show. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the number of people we've had things like Brokeback Mountain. We've had kind of, um, you know, the culture has kind of moved on to the point where maybe that's not as big a risk. You know, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done those things 20 or 30 years ago. I think they should have been braver, but at the same time, maybe it's less brave doing it now, you know, than it would have been, then in some ways maybe brave's the wrong word I, I suppose i just mean you know you can imagine there's there's always the kind of toss-up isn't there between the usually the the more kind of liberal creatives the writers and so on and then the producers and the you know the rick bermans of the world who are saying oh no don't do that you know we might lose this percentage of the audience um and we don't want to offend anyone and i think it's you, you know it's a that again is a sort of tightrope i suppose that star trek has always walked between being this quite idealistic show that was born out of Roddenberry's frustrations, making the lieutenant and, uh, you know, desire to deal with kind of contemporary issues and important issues of the time. And the fact that this is a massive, you know, corporate entertainment machine that has made, you know, vast quantities of money for very uh, big 
corporations essentially uh and and star trek sort of has to carry on trying to be both and in some ways that's a can be a difficult you know line to to walk but it's always going to be there there's always going to be that kind of that balance and i think you know as time goes forward i mean the, the all the sort of trans stuff i mean when you and i were growing up this just was not something obviously we were aware you know there were transgender people i don't know if they even used we talk about transvestites in those days i don't yeah. know if people even use the word transgender no, particularly no, no. but that was just seen as a sort of I suppose as a source of curiosity in a way, or like if you think about, you know, another episode that's dated horrifically, uh, Profit and Lace from mm. DS9, mm. it was a kind of, you know, the butt of a joke essentially and not much more. There's no attempt to sort of take seriously those kind of stories in a way. And only in the, you know, the last few years really, uh, the attention of, um, well, the world, I suppose, but particularly, you know, the Western world, I think has kind of been redirected towards trans stories and and kind of what those experiences might be like who knows what it's going to be you know in 20 years time what is there that we're kind of ignoring or dismissing right now that we're suddenly going to think gosh that was terrible wasn't it you know um whether it's animal rights or whether it's you, you, do you know what i mean whatever sort of social issue it is that that is kind of has not bubbled up necessarily yet and maybe um these current Star Trek shows are going to seem dated in their own ways. But I think it's, you, you know, it's inevitable that for something that's going to endure for that period of time, it has to to change and shift. And those kind of changes in the broader landscape have to be reflected in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it will be it will be interesting to see what, what happens. I mean, I, I think I think we will find that I mean, and we're already seeing it, really. But I think we will find because you could you could see you could say something like the burn in in Discovery season three to some extent was a reflection of this. But I think you'll find Star Trek much more consciously evoking the idea of self destruction of humanity's self destruction in in the face of of, of enormous change. Because you know, in the, over the next, if, if Star Trek does endure, and, and I, I firmly believe it will, I mean, it's entering in terms of content, what could be the greatest golden age ever, you know, in terms of the amount of variation, you know, the idea that there will be a Star Trek episode on TV every week of the year, which is the aim, I think, of Paramount, um, to, to Viacom Par- Par- Paramount to make that happen. Um, and that didn't even, that didn't even really happen back then, back in the nineties, you know, you'd still, it'd still go off air for a couple of months in the summer, you know, and then come back for a new season, even when you had two or three se- series running at the same time. Now we've got Star Trek all the time in theory. Now I think that's fantastic. I think the quality and, and like, you know, I mean, back in the nineties, it's easy to look for us to look back on the nineties now and, and really sort of be wistful for it. But you know, there were, there were so many back then. There were so many times people would say, this isn't very good or this isn't great or, you know, uh, that happens in every single era, I think. So I think you will find what it will do is really lean into the big social issues. I think maybe even more than some of the political issues in a way. I think Star Trek will really start to go into this. I think it will, in, inequality, I think we will see in some sense, some kind of reflection of COVID-19, of the effect of a, of some massive trauma that affects everybody and is something that is existential and is maybe going to continue and be in, in perpetuity for some time in perpetuity. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's always hard to predict because the Star Trek does sort of ebb and flow with the eras, even though it doesn't necessarily always realize it's doing it. 
You know, when you chart the history of it in the sense I've tried to do with this book, you really can see just how it does in, interrogate and investigate and tap into the major tentpole moments of those eras. And I do think it's doing it again. I do absolutely think it's doing it again. I think that's why Picard was made the way it was. I think, I think that's, and, and that, but now it's that is that balance of, of corporate versus creative. You know, in, in, now, now we live in a world where IP is such that it is to be mined in all kinds of different ways. You're now seeing that there is more opportunity to, for variation. And, and I do, I do think that is one of the real bonuses of Star Trek right now in that who would have ever imagined when we were, when we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago when we were watching Star Trek that you would have had an animated comedy series and it actually work. It actually work and be good and be funny and be in perfectly in tune in many ways with the series of, of old. We would have, we would have gone, that's ridiculous. Cause like you said, the only back, the metric we had back then was the animated series, which had all been ignored. So, and considered a silly little kids thing. And I think it's so, so the culture around these things has changed. The way we interact with media has changed to such a point now that I think in a way Star Trek can sort of align itself with a lot of the movements that are happening in the world right now around in, in terms of social change. And I think it will in many ways straddle that line between what it can get away with that being too offensive, quote unquote, to one sector of the populace, but on the other hand, fully embrace a lot of the rapid social changes that are happening right now, the rapid political changes and cultural changes. So it's it's very exciting, and I think I have issues with some of the quality. I do. I've said this before on this podcast. I do sometimes, but I I do choose to believe by the end of the book that there is some hope, and in general, I think for for both Star Trek and us as a species, because I think really anyone who is still engaging with Star Trek now is he does believe in that future, you know, and does believe that we can we can get out of this. Well, <laughs> not just this mess, but all the messes, all the mess, all the different messes that we've always been in, that we can get through them. And, you know, we do. We, we do. And, and I, I think, and Star Trek changes with it. So I, 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 I found it really fun to sort of map it all out in that sense and really go deep on a lot of these things. And, and, and I, I, it does. And I, but I have to say it would, this book would never have existed without this podcast because this podcast, there's off, there's moments in this book that definitely came ideas that came from recordings that you did or that we did. And it's, it allowed, it gave me such a, a breadth of content in many ways to sort of pick and choose from in many ways. Even though, even though we haven't, we haven't covered everything in this book. There was one, um, but we, we've done a lot. Like there was, the, in fact, the sample chapter I wrote was the, um, the Cold War Chernobyl undiscovered country stuff. Um, which we only got around to recording, I think, last year. And I wrote it like two years <laughs> ago. And I was thinking, I'm writing this because eventually we're going to talk about it because that was the one that got away for a long time. For uh, you and that's I. why you were so keen for that episode. <laughs> the end of <laughs> history, done the homework yeah. Already. I had. Sometimes it works the other way around because I, I sometimes write um, features for StarTrek.com and I, I'm always looking because they post this. Well, they, or they did until recently anyway. They post a list of topics they are interested in, in having. And if I see anything that I think I can twist towards one of our previous 
podcast episodes, I think, oh, brilliant. That's it. That's going to be an easy one because I've got all my yeah. notes. I can just go back to <laughs> kind of recycle whatever I said on the podcast. You yeah, know? it does um, help. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it's great. I mean, you know, I, 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 I think there's room for, obviously, one of the things that I've tried to always do with primitive culture is have that slightly eclectic, varied, uh, jumping around all over this place feel to it. Do you know what I mean? To, to try to, to do, you know, a eighties action movie one week and a, you know, piece of classic literature the next or, you, you know, whatever it is, um, to kind of keep it fresh. But I do think that there's a real strength in, as you've done, sort of, organizing things broadly speaking chronologically and giving that sense of change over time and giving that kind of um uh bigger picture in a way and, and also you know in drawing quite interesting connections i mean you talk about these sort of tent poles of history you draw some quite surprising connections at times uh for me or, or things i hadn't really thought about i mean i mentioned uh, the religious right and and the Vija pro but uh also at one point i think you sort of draw a line between monica lewinsky and section 31 which is certainly not a, a connection <laughs> that ever kind of occurred to me but you know yeah it's it's that general period i think in the 90s where you have conspiracy culture sort of you know rise up again in in sort of a, a parallel with the 70s i think i think that's where it comes from i think you know you you would only have got section 31 in an era where you had suspicion again of the people in charge and in in, in that case though it was compared to nowadays it's quite tame really i mean there's as um you know, as scandalous as the Monica Lewinsky stuff was with Clinton, I mean, it's nothing compared to this stage now, which is why Section 31 are yeah, back again, you know, sure. um, because they, you, you have, you have to have these kind of reflections, these kind of distrustful reflections. It's why Section 31 wasn't as ubiquitous in what didn't exist inside the 1980s, because it was a different kind of landscape, really, much as, you know, in some ways, Reagan was a forerunner for Trump. He wasn't, at the same time, the the same kind of president that people massively distrusted on a moral level, you know, in the same way. So, I on a personal moral level, I think. So, you know, there's there's you can find these these interesting connectives. I think when when you look for them, and, and to be fair, like I say, a lot of this is pre existing research that I'm drawing from as well. A lot of people who've done some come up with some fascinating ideas. Um, that I've sort of talked about and incorporated into this book. So, you know, I, I owe a debt to all of those, um, you know, essay writers and, and, and creatives in the past who've, who've drawn out some amazing connections. I mean, things like, you know, the, the connection between the Borg and the AIDS virus and all the, all this kind of stuff, which, which I touch on in the eighties as well. You know, it's fascinating. It really, I, I was, I learned a lot writing this book and sort of drawing a lot of these things together. So I think this book in many ways is as much me pushing some of that great content out there as opposed to, you know, me putting my thesis to the world as well, you know, to the Star Trek world. So, you know, I, I hope, I hope people enjoy it. I hope people get something out of it. I, th- I think anyone who's listens to, who listens to this podcast would, would enjoy this book. I think, I think they would see. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think they would see things in there that we've talked about before. As I say, I think they'd see things in there that we haven't that, you know, who knows, maybe we could at some point. I, th- I think there's, that I think it, I try to when I write a book now. I mean, my first book wasn't so much like this because it was a bit of a jumble of ideas. But when I when I'm now approaching a book like this, I'm trying to write it in terms of a story. You know, in many ways that there there is a story within nonfiction writing. And I think if you can find that story and sort of answer that question at the, at the middle of it, which I hope I've done with this, 
then it can be quite an intri- interesting sort of compelling sort of thing. I'm doing a similar thing with the book I'm writing about Sean Connery right now, actually, a similar sort of through the decades kind of approach. And again, you can find a story in there. So, so yeah, I hope people like this one. That's all. I'll, that's all I'd say, really. I'm sure they will. I feel I have to ask if uh, if it takes a Trump or a Clinton, you, you, you know, a president with a, a bit of a dark side to them to to get Section 31 going, then presumably the Biden presidency doesn't bode very well for Michelle Yeoh and her spin-off series. That's been <laughs> development hell for about five years now. Right? Well, she's going to have to wait for the next kind of crackpot. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> you know, or Trump's, spot to come Trump's return. Yeah. You know, the return of the wrath of Trump. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, he was meant to be coming back on the 16th of August or something, wasn't he? Oh, was he? I don't know quite what, what went on there. A bit like, you know, the rapture or, or one of these things <laughs> that, that somehow seems to pass us all by. And also, I mean, this is not, these are not the end days, <laughs> you know, at least as no, far as we know. I mean, whether all. you love it or hate uh, Kurtzman Trek, you, you know, whether you loved or hated Berman Trek, that that too passed. I mean, you know, uh, at some point, things will shift again. You, you know, Star Trek, because it is such a valuable IP, it will keep reinventing itself and we might love it, we might hate it. We might feel, you know, as I think both you and I do, that, that we enjoy it, but we're a bit ambivalent about some of the yeah. changes yeah. that have gone on. But that has always been the case. And for any long-running franchise, that is always going to be the case. There's going to be, a, you know, changes that you like and changes that you don't. I mean, Section 31, back in the 90s, I wasn't wild about that. And I've still never quite come around to it. Other people think it's the best thing you know, to come to Star Trek uh, mm. since the transporter, you know. So um, <laughs> there's, it's a broad church. There's room for plenty of yeah. opinions, I think. But I think your book does an excellent job, uh, as I say, of kind of painting that broader picture. Um, and absolutely, for anyone uh, who enjoys this podcast, I'm sure they would enjoy reading it too. Before we go, do you want to just let our listeners know uh, where they can get hold of a copy, um, what the book is called and, and, and any other information they might need uh, to get their hands on it. So, yeah, the book is called um, Star Trek History and Us. It does have a subtitle, but you can you can find the book with Star Trek History and Us, which uh, was actually t- the title I did actually come up with, which I'm quite pleased because my previous book, the title got changed into something that I don't know. It doesn't really trip off the tongue for me, but like this one I was, I was much happier with. And... Uh, yeah, you can get this book uh, from the publisher, McFarland, uh, McFarland.com. You can buy it on Amazon um, and you can order it from your local uh, bookshop, wherever that may be, whatever country you might be in. The only downside is that it is quite expensive. It's technically a a book for, in theory, academia, although it's not, nece- it's not necessarily peer-reviewed and that kind of thing, but it does have sort of academic pricing, so it is actually a little bit expensive. It's more around the £40 or so mark. I will say a few people who um, listen to Primitive Culture have reached out and bought a copy from me, which is really kind, and I do have a few spare copies. So if you want a kind of signed – if you want a signed book at a slight – discount rate which i can probably do um including postage then uh, yeah get in touch with me on social media and um and and we'll, we'll have a chat about it but uh but yeah you can you can find it on at those places a, a good tip which um uh, uh, your friend of mine darren mooney mentioned to me who's been on this podcast when he uh had a similar book was that a good tip with a book like this is to actually ask your local library to order it in because they can afford to buy these books and then you could you could you could load the book uh, and then it will be in that local library and then other people can read it as well so if you ask them they might well buy it so that actually is a little tip that actually might be quite good so you could do that and save yourself a bit of money um but yeah you can find it in all those places um and i would just say 
thank you. If you do pick it up and do read it off the back of our chat, I would be enormously grateful. And please do get in touch with me um, on my um, on my social media at uh, AJ Black Writer on Twitter, you know, and tell me what you think and get in touch and ask me any questions. And I'd, I'd be more than happy to have a chat about it with anyone listening, particularly to this podcast, because many of you have been listening to Primitive Culture for quite a few years, maybe even since we set it up. And it wouldn't exist, this book, without you guys, as much as Duncan and anyone else we've talked about. But so um, because you guys have listened, we've kept doing these and it's helped. So in some ways, you are responsible for this book as well. So thank you. And um, yeah, if you do buy it, like I say, my sincerest thanks. And we will, of course, as ever, be uh, there on the Babel Conference to continue the conversation if anyone yeah. has any thoughts uh off of this episode but you know also off of reading the book as well uh be fascinating to continue the conversation there but thank you tony and congratulations on the book uh, as i said thank i really you. enjoyed it and thanks as ever thanks. for joining me well thanks duncan uh, again my personal thanks to you for all you do with this podcast and for creating it um with me and then taking it on and stewarding it i know we've talked about this before but uh you know you you do get a dedication in the book because it wouldn't exist without you so thanks and thanks for having me back on to talk about it and um, be very very uh indulgent talk about my own work <laughs> business is normal next time guys we'll actually do a normal episode where we don't just talk about me we will but, we but will. thanks but yeah. thank you <laughs> <laughs> that's right my pleasure check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended already.